You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Berberich. As the ANA's resident trends and technology guy, it might surprise you to know that, in my opinion, marketing has never been about the tech. It's about the people, people, and my guest today agrees with me. Tim Ringle is a serial entrepreneur who is looking to transform the agency holding company model by putting people at the center. The co-founder of Meet the People and I discussed how companies can leverage technology to create a more humane workplace and how focusing on the human aspect above even financials when making decisions pays off in the long term. Let's start the show. Everyone, we are back in the ANA Marketing Futures virtual podcast studio. We've got an illuminating and inspiring conversation ahead of us. So please help me welcome to the pod, Tim Ringel, the CEO and co-founder of Meet the People. Tim, thank you so, so much for being here today. I really appreciate it, bud. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited. All right. Rock and roll, rock and roll. So, how did your past experiences, and if you want to kind of unpack that for our listeners, that'd be fantastic. But how did sort of the journey you've been on so far with other companies influence the way you structure Meet the People? Yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> My afternoon's pretty free. So let, okay, let, let's, let it start, let's start in kindergarten. No, I'm kidding. So, um, <laughs> okay. So uh, I think most important is um, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I fell into the advertising industry pretty randomly, actually, if you're honest about it, because I'm I'm actually an engineer in my heart. I uh, my parents were smart enough to give me a PC when I was 11 instead of an Amiga or C64, and because they gave me a PC and I didn't have a lot of love for it in the beginning, I could not trade any games on the schoolyard. So I had to start programming, had to teach much myself how to program, how to code. And um, so I always wanted to build things. And when I was a teenager, that was really the early 90s. And the internet was just about to start, right? Just about to become popular in its very, very infant uh, infant stages. So I built my first business not really knowing what I wanted to build. Besides, I wanted to build stuff on the internet. Um, so I co-founded a business while I was in college with my with my friend Marco. And we were probably 20 years old. And we built websites you know, just for ourselves, like based on some crazy ideas we had, all of them failed, nothing worked, like the website worked, but nobody was visiting. And that's how I kind of fell into the advertising industry, because our clients, we were basically coding websites on the site, um, like small companies, SMBs, and they would call us and say like, well, we're also not getting any traffic after you build our website. So what are you going to do? And we started dabbling with search optimization, right? how to get traffic for free from Yahoo, AltaVista, InfoSeq, you know, the candidates to websites. And this is really how I fell into the ad industry. Like my first company was technically an SEO company in when I was 21 um, in 98. And uh, it became a full service performance marketing agency over a period of 12 years. Very entrepreneurial. I owned, together with Marco, we owned the whole business. And we sold the company when it was 150 people and seven offices in Europe. I'm originally from Germany. Um, and moved to the U.S. seven years ago. So sequentially, after building and selling my first business, and I must have been 
probably 32, 33, we had the chance in terms of myself and my um, CEO, who's today still my CEO, no, for awesome. 15 years or something, um, again and again, we had the opportunity to do a reverse takeover of the company that bought my company. Wow. And that became my second company. So two very entrepreneurial stories. The first one from two people in the basement to 150, and then from 370 people to nearly 1,000 people in the second business in a period of four and a half years. Jeez. So that's what I would say was my um, entrepreneurial being thrown in the deep end by myself experience. Mm -hmm. uh, the company was nearly 1,000 people had in the end 25 offices in 17 countries in Europe, Middle East, and Asia. My goodness. And it was listed in the French Stock Exchange. And fun fact, my French is terrible. And I was the CEO of a, of a French <laughs> <listed> company. <laughs> so we had a ton of fun uh, being misunderstood by analysts. Um, oh my God. <laughs> um, so, but I'm explaining this because this really was a formative time in my life where I really enjoyed building, uh, building companies, working with amazing people. And we were super scrappy. When I look back at the presentations we won business with, they looked terrible, but we were just super authentic. We were very nerdy. We really knew our stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we would beat large holding companies in their own game by being super scrappy, have no pitch budget, like basically... Uh, walking to the pitch instead of flying or whatever whatever took us there right we would car share room share whatever you know whatever we had to do mm -hmm. so um, and then I came to the U.S. when I saw my part of that business and wanted to do it again but landed up in interpublic group of companies IPG because they made me an offer I couldn't resist coming to New York from my home like Germany Düsseldorf um, was quite a sticker shock right I did live in London in between so I knew what you know, large city expensive living looks like, but right. but New York is a different level, as we all know. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about building my business. And then um, IPG called and said, like, hey, Tim, we heard you're moving to New York. And I said, like, well, I don't know how you heard it because I <laughs> left my own business. Um, and I know you guys wanted to buy my business. So interestingly, so I am actually moving to New York. And they said, like, well, why don't you come in and we see, you know, if you can work for us? I said, like, well, Let's, let's talk about that. So they made me an irresistible offer. I took the offer and I inherited Reprise. Reprise was, this was probably, this was in 2017, January 2017. I started as global CEO of Reprise Media, was it called at the time. And Reprise was an acquisition they did in 2008. So roughly what, like nine years before I became CEO. Mm -hmm. And at the time there were they told me it's around 500 people. I said, that's super easy for me. It's total comfort zone, a lot in the US and some globally. And um, it ended up to be 800 people after I ran the numbers. <laughs> oh, wow. In the first three months, because they were all hidden in pockets, like how holding companies are structured is um, you have like IPG has 100 brands, right? Between McCann, RGA, huge, whatever, UM initiative, you name it, right? They have hundreds of agencies in these companies, in these holdings, and they sometimes and I don't think they forget, but they really don't remember really where all these people are. So I had people mm -hmm. everywhere in the world. I had probably nearly 60 offices across 800 people. So tiny, tiny teams. Within right, but a lot of them. Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, well, I, I, I took the role. And at the time, um, IPG told me, so um, Michael Ross and the team, they told me, we really need a competitor to the eye prospects out there. Because IPG didn't have a real play on the performance marketing side. They had performance marketing, but it was in pockets. It was Reprise for Search, um, Society for Social, Ansible for Mobile, Cadrin for Programmatic. So there was no unified proposition. So the, mm -hmm. the, the quest was create a unified proposition, make us a name in the performance marketing industry. So we set out 
on that mission, I, I served three years in IPG and I'm saying served because the first one and a half of very exciting. Like, you know, it's very different to entrepreneurship where there's technically endless money and, uh, and, and, and endless water hose of clients that want to work with the large holding companies. So I grew this business from 800 people to 3,000 people in three years. Um, it was so easy. It was so easy compared to building your own business and so comfortable, right? I never in my life had a, had a black suburban pick me up from home to drive me to the airport, right? Um, I would never have done that but in ipg it was normal as ceo you have that luxury right and these kind of things were, were crazy from my perspective of flying to singapore for a pitch where i was basically attending 45 minutes like insane but um you know i learned i learned a lot about um how professional these structures are and how professional pitching looks like and i mentioned before how scrappy we were when we were, um, you know, our own thousand people shop. So um, nevertheless, I did leave IPG because, um, as I mentioned, the first one and a half years were amazing. And then once we were mentioned as Reprise, we rebranded Reprise into Reprise Digital. We did beautiful CI. We had future brands to do it internally. And it was beautiful CI. People really rallied behind it because we became so large and successful within the group, third most profitable business in the group, fastest growing agency in IPG. And we got mentioned, I got mentioned in the shareholder meetings, you know, this is our digital play. There was a lot of envy within the organization, right? Because I was like, ah, I came there. I was one and a half years in. Who is this guy? This entrepreneur. And people have been building their careers for 15 years, right? Climbing the ladder. So there was a lot of that envy and political stuff that I really don't enjoy. And then I decided, you know what? Like, it's fine. Um, this is not me. Uh, I got to move on. And today, Meet the People is really, to answer your question, Meet the People is really what I felt was the most beautiful part of my entrepreneurial journey to a thousand people and probably the most useful parts of the 3000 people afterwards when it comes to the professionalism and how we approach things, the way, the quality of how we want to deliver our product, our work, our services to clients, also the clients we want to work on. But I think the main reason why I called my venture you now two years, two, three years and three months ago, meet the people was that I felt the industry is falling into something that I personally don't love. I'm obviously somebody who loves innovating. I'm, I'm someone who built this business on the big platforms, on the back of the big platforms, Google, Meta, Amazon. But nevertheless, it's in the end not really about the technology. It's not really about the platform. It's not really about AI. Mm -hmm. It's about the people that actually make all this stuff happen for clients. And yes. there's a tendency of them getting forgotten. In the process so i said you know what let's put the people back in the center of the attention let's call the company meet the people behind the work right and um, that's that's what we're trying to do so the difference of mtp meet the people probably now is that we are people-centric and we really mean it um i know we're not never going to be perfect but we want to be better than the others and we're going to be client-centric because that was really the success that i've had in the first two businesses that i built it's not really about like, oh, is this what we should sell? Because this is something we're comfortable with. No, no. What is your business problem, dear client? What do you really struggle with? Oh, usually it's, oh, we're not growing in revenue. We're losing market share. We're not efficient enough. We think our distribution sucks, right? Like these kind of things. Or, or we really haven't tackled uh, the platforms and, and how we become the, a D2C brand, right? So let us help with that. We might not have all the answers. We might not know everything. I might not have all the specialists. But we're going to help you get it done. And that's mm -hmm. the point, right? It's a little bit less about a box product. It's way more about being a real business 
partner to our clients. That's in a nutshell, haha, a 10 minute nutshell, but that's really how I came to what I'm building here with MTP right now. I love that. And that is kind of really what drew me to your company and to, to wanting to have this conversation is the people centricity and the way you kind of triple down on it. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to talk about that a little in depth now. So as we've just learned, you have a knack for taking a company of a certain size and making it significantly larger in a short amount of time. So how do you ensure your people centricity ethos trickles down through all levels of MTP as it grows and expands? Yeah. So the biggest mistake people make and managers just as much as employees is that they believe that life is predictable, right? And the way how companies operate should be predictable. It is never going to be predictable. If you have a company that is performing mediocre, you're going to have restructuring, right? If you have a company that is growing really fast, you're going to have restructuring. So just let's be honest. If we can make peace with the fact that a growing business has to change just as much as a stagnating business has to change, then we're already on a better page to start with, right? So where, where am I getting to? It's expectations. As I'm from Europe and have built lots of my businesses in Europe, the labor market and employment means something very different to what it means in the United States, right? Where my business operates right now. So we're in US and Canada. So how does people centricity trickle down? Number one, honesty, right? So if we are if we are real, and I keep telling my folks, like, listen, if we grow 20, 40% year on year, no matter if it's through acquisition or organic, we're gonna change the structure. You have a title today, but your title or your your job's gonna change. And if you do a really good job, your career is going to progress, right? So it's about managing the expectations. And a, a, a business that promises you everything is going to be the way it has been in the past is obviously, it's obviously lying, right? It's not going right. to be the case. Look at the economy. Look, look at all the stuff we have gone through in the last four years. It's insane. Yeah. So um, we are trying to be a very open book here. So that's number one. Number two is the biggest problem in, 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 in larger organization is collaboration, right? You're kind of like, look at the like very well-performing businesses. And I'm taking Amazon for a reason here. It has this ethos of, well, no team should be bigger than 14 people, right? Or like these, these, these micro-organisms within the organization. Why are they doing that? They're doing it so decision-making happens faster. So yeah. fail fast, but also succeed faster, right? That's kind of the concept. And that's the reason why MTP is not one large organization. So MTP, technically, even though we're trying to be the anti-holding company, we are a holding company because we are holding assets, companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we acquire an agency, and now we are six companies, right? Um, each of them keep their brand and keep their cultural DNA intact. Why? Because it's a, similar, a little similar to the Amazon model, just that we don't cut it off by at 14 people. Like if you have 90 people who have been operating a business semi-successfully for the last we have one creative agent that's 40 years in market like wow. who am i to tell them how to do it better right right right, right. <laughs> if something doesn't work of course but if something works like don't you know as as, as an it guy never change a running system right so mm -hmm. what what i mean with that is like if you create smaller clusters where people can strive and you don't bury them in hierarchy and bureaucracy 
that's usually a very, very good way to manage a company. So lean structure when it comes to hierarchy is another one. And the third one probably is one of the most important ones is how do you appreciate people collaborating and their individual work? So mm-hmm. obviously in the United States, um, it's very professionalized how you do performance reviews and career passing and all these beautiful things. But in the end, really only the manager and probably an HR person knows what's going on, right? Like mm-hmm. that information doesn't travel very far within the organization. Why? Because of the work culture in the United States, right? Everybody wants to look amazing. So they have a safe job and they can build their career. So that's usually happening. That's usually happening on the back of people who are in the lower lower uh, chain of the um, you know of the food chain. So what we're trying to do here is create transparency. Like number one, when you have six businesses under one roof, how do you know who's actually in the businesses? So what we created is mm-hmm. a, we're using a SaaS HR platform for that, where no matter where you are in the organization, no matter who you are in the organization, what you are, how you identify, you can log into that uh, solution and you can see anyone in the organization, including me. You can mail me, text me, you can reach out to me. It's like a social platform that also does all our HR when it comes to payroll and W-2s and you name it, right? Everything in one platform where people can celebrate each other, give each other kudos, uh, um, um, celebrate client wins, celebrate anniversaries, whatever that is. It's in one platform, no matter if you work for our retail business in Canada, you work for a creative agency in Chicago, or you work for a digital agency in New Hampshire, it doesn't matter. You're all on one platform, right? That's really important for transparency, and making sure you can bubble up through the, the, the noise out there. And the other one is uh, rewards and awards. I mentioned in some of my initial statements when we start the business that I would like to have everybody in equity. That is extremely tricky. Uh, my ambition is still to get as many people as possible to participate in the success of MTP. But at this moment in time, we're launching an award a platform where basically we're going to reward virtual currency to everybody in the business. And people can send this currency to each other to celebrate their success. So it's not manager down. It's really grassroots where everybody becomes the same allocation of virtual currency and they can celebrate each other with that virtual currency and they can redeem it into the next holiday. They can redeem it into uh, concert tickets, uh, grocery, whatever you want, right? And in the future and... uh, hold me accountable to it. I also want people to have the opportunity to redeem these points into equity, right? So that is is how I want to change a little bit the operating model of, of, of our industry. And why? Because Meet the People says it in the name, our industry is not the next tech trend or any first party data I collect as an agency. Anyways, I'm against that. But like, it's the people who work in the business. It's a relationship Mm -hmm. business, right? So how do we make people celebrate each other? How can the company be good to them, right? And how can we make them be loyal ambassadors of our clients and our work? So that's really the mission. I I just love that so much. And correct me if I'm wrong, the virtual currency, that kind of award system, the points, currency, whatever, that you receive initially from any one given benchmark, you can't use those that currency yourself, you can only share it and bestow it upon to other people. And that's when it actually activates. Right. That's my I, th- so I my, love that so, I mean, the, so much. The ambition is uh, we're still working on the technical kinks that come with that, right? Because you technically have different classes then of 
awards that change their class once they're distributed uh, and once they're shared. But my my initial motivation when I set out was exactly that. Like, let's say you get $1,000 in awards, right? And you don't spend it immediately yourself on Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> right. Because it's not going to be enough anyways. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a down payment right? for a parking Exactly. Pass. It's going to be the parking lot probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the idea is really you have an incentive to 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 collaborate and share and and send it to your to your friends at work and build relationships. And once you receive them, that's the ones you can spend. That's the idea. I just love operationalizing generosity and that community feeling. Yeah. It's just like what I said. It, it, you're really putting your money where your mouth is as far as making people-centric organizations and processes that really celebrate the humans because you're 100% right. I always say this. Marketing has never been about tech, not for 10 seconds, not, for, not with the first iPhone, not with the internet, not with the metaverse, not with AI. Uh, it's always about the people, uh, whether the people you're trying to talk to or the people creating the work itself. Right. So That's here, right. here on all of that, I think that that is an incredible way of using technology to make a more humane and a more caring work environment. We always hear about technology for the bottom line, but making it a better place to spend your time is just, it's very inspiring. Like I said at the top, this is going to be an inspiring chat. Oh. I, I always have high ambitions of what I want to do and want to build. And I create high ambitions because even if we just get to 50% of that, right, that's already a dramatic change. That's how, like, I remember when I joined IPG <laughs> and uh, I, uh, Craig Ellis, who is now our president of North America, he was uh, the chief operating officer there. He was already there six months before me. And he came from Australia. I came from Germany. And um, I remember in the first board meeting where I presented after 100 days I present my three-year plan, right? The typical corporate stuff. I read it somewhere in a book. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and I, I sat there and I said, like, we're going to double this business in three years. And he looked at me. He called me crazy. He was like, are you crazy? You can't say these things. So like, but listen, that's my ambition. And we tripled it in three years, right? right? So, but if you don't set yourself high targets, if you don't allow yourself to be ambitious about it, you're not going to move the needle. And, yeah. and listen, it's, I'm not saying it's easy. None of this is easy. The economy is crap. The employment market has been a pendulum that swings back forth. You don't know, right? Sometimes my head is spinning. But nevertheless, you know, we keep the eye on the price. We want to build an advertising group that and does not only do digital, that does combine IRL with the digital world. So a lot of the companies we have in our portfolio are very versed in physical, in-person experience or out of home or traditional marketing, design, creative, the fundaments of what the industry is built on. And then you can execute through digital and platforms and whatnot. But I really believe that we as humans, you know, we are still in real life, even though we spend 60% of our time on our devices. But I really appreciate tasting a product. I really appreciate touching a product. I really appreciate walking through New York City and seeing a funny billboard. I really appreciate that stuff, you know? And I don't know, I may call me naive and old school, but I really believe the, the differentiator is going to be the some companies and brands who really combine that customer experience from, and I explained it recently when I was in Philadelphia to a client we were pitching. I said like, well, for me, the ambition of the collaboration is going to be does the TV commercial marry with the experience you have when you take the product out of a Whole Foods shelf and consume it, right? 
Yes. Is that a consistent customer experience? Like, does that feel the same? We, we all remember it. I mean, come on, look at Burger King advertising. The burgers look amazing. Mm -hmm. You get that floppy thing in the end. Like, that's not a great customer experience. You eat it because you're hungry and you don't want to go to Burger King anymore, right? So <laughs> yeah. that's what I mean, a consistent customer experience and the amount of money. And one example, and then I'm going to shut up. But one good example is um, I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son here in New York City. So whenever I go shopping with my daughter, the experience in shops like H&M, Zara, Urban Outfitters is a great experience until you are checking out. Yep. You wait for 20 minutes because there's no one there. I'm like, they spend millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to build the brand, get you in the store, make the store, like optimize every inch of that store for the customer experience. And then there's no one to check you out. And you're like, why am I doing this? Right? Ooh, exactly. Everything just goes down. Everything. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, exactly. it's, it's gone. Exactly. Or you go to a luxury brand, right? Let's presume anniversary. You want to spoil your partner. You buy something really fancy, right? And that sales assistant in the luxury brand, I'm just making an example, let's say Chanel, right? Um, I go in there, I want to spend two grand on a bag and it's beautifully crafted. The product is amazing. The sales associate is well-trained. And what I get after I purchase, I get the sales associate's phone number, right? Here in America. Mm -hmm. But that's not Chanel's phone number. That is the individual because they get commission. They want you to come back. Chanel doesn't know me. I walk into another Chanel, so they don't know me right? Yeah. The sales associate moves to another luxury brand. I have no one to call anymore. It's such a loss from my perspective, right? The customer lifetime value behind that. And they're trying to fix these things, but it puzzles me. It puzzles me how millions of dollars go into driving someone into an experience and then nobody cares what happens afterwards, you know? Absolutely. And that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, and I should know who said it, but I saw it at an ANA event and it okay. stuck with me. Unfortunately, apologies to whomever I'm quoting over <laughs> and over again. I, I wish I could source you, but it's your brand is every touch point you have with customers, period. That's right. You know, if you're, if sending them an invoice is a bad experience, that's your brand. Right. And like you said, waiting in line because it's just an understaffed locate. That's your brand. That's your whole brand. That's that right. to your point, you've spent nine, 10 figures polishing up and presenting in this ephemeral way. But then when like, like mm -hmm. the IRL experience will make all of that moot if it doesn't match up. So why I'm mentioning this is the we started with creative and design. What does a what is a brand about? The what and why, right? And the next acquisition we did was experiential in shopper retail. Why? Exactly because of that. Because these two are usually not married. Everything mm -hmm. in between, you know, like, yeah, sure, the creative agency is gonna take care of content. Some of them actually build destinations, websites, like right, but none of them actually cares about how the store looks from the inside and how it feels to touch the veneer on the counter and the product itself what experience do i get so that's why we why why i acquired the bookends first mm -hmm. and now i'm filling the shelf with the rest of the capabilities that's the logic um also it was timely because obviously in the pandemic um these these bookends were probably the part of the advertising industry that they were suffering the most right mm -hmm. so it was a mix of strategy and and the opportunity in the market
wanted to, because in an earlier discussion, uh, you mentioned how this people centricity, it's not just in how things are set up, but it's in how you make decisions where it's not necessarily just a financial first decision, but you really bring in that humanity aspect. Can you provide an example where this approach has actually led to a better long-term outcome for MTP? Because this isn't all just virtuosity. It, it has to be a viable, profitable business approach at the end of the day. So if you could show us a, an example of that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's, let's be honest. Um, in the end, uh, businesses are for profit, right? And if we're not building a non-for-profit business here. Right. But my belief is, and I honestly have seen it in, in every other business that I've built, if your culture is strong and your people are happy, they're going to create better product. And if the product is great, they're going to have happier clients. So I remember in my first agency, the average client stickiness, if you want to call it that, was mm -hmm. roughly eight years. For agencies in the digital space where it's so competitive, that was pretty much unheard of. That's and insane. That, exactly. But it was driven by the fact that we were trying to be good to our people. And people came to work. That was the time where people actually came to work. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they came to work happy because we would we would hang out with each other. It was like I know lots of families say, lots of companies say we are family. Like, you know, you're obviously not a family. People have a family, but right. um, we should be more like a family. So um, how does that translate in real life? So number one, I mentioned the award program. So if our people help to win business, they're going to participate in it, right? Effectively through the award program, because we incentivize them really, I mean, with virtual currency, right? But obviously also because people can then you know technically build their own businesses businesses within our organization that means um we're actually pitching right now touch wood right uh, a rather large piece of business and if we really win that business we're going to set up an entire company for it within our organization wow. um and it's going to be people who are going to raise their hand and say like well i'm really excited about this i was part of the pitch or i really love that brand and we're going to build an organization around that. You can only do that when you have a certain entrepreneurial spirit, but also at a certain size. Number one, you have to be mm -hmm. big enough. So we are now, what, 550 people probably. If everything goes well and, you know, the gods are good with us, we're going to be probably 750, 800 people um, in the next two quarters. Um, wow. Because we're hopefully adding another company to our portfolio. Um, but you can't do that when you're too big. Mm -hmm. Because it's gonna, you need fifteen people to agree to it, right? Yeah. Uh, and investors and shareholders and all this kind of stuff. And you can't do it if you're too small, right? So that's kind of a sweet spot we want to use for ourselves. I always say, if everything below five thousand people, you can still have an agile organization. Everything above that becomes and it's very general, but uh, it becomes very tough because um, you do have to deliver financial performance, otherwise. You know, uh, I'm going to be faster out of the door than my shareholders can carry me, right? Um, <laughs> but the, the, you have to deliver something. But it doesn't need to be, you know, don't need to squeeze it out. That's the mm. point, right? And our financial ambitions are, are, are big ambitions, right? In terms of scale, what we want to deliver. But we don't need to be the most profitable company on the planet. We want to be profitable enough so we can stand strong in the industry. But we don't need to be the most profitable company. We're going to get that value from other sources and that's the stickiness of clients the synergies we create the longevity of people working for us and with us right i always say the biggest mistake that 
I think the large, and I have an anecdote on this, I'm not going to go too deep into it now, but um, the biggest problem that rating companies have is that they don't value these aspects of a company. Mm -hmm. When you go to Standard & Poor, all they look at is their revenue, the profit, and your debt, and probably what the revenue and profit run rates are. That's how they evaluate the viability, even banks. That's how they evaluate the viability of your business. People, not even a line item. Data, monthly active users, not a line item for traditional business. Longevity of clients, not really a line item for businesses, right? So why makes no sense? I'm not going to change the economy, right? But uh, we can change some of it a little bit. Yeah, and I love that. And I really feel that that makes you a unique player in this space because the just the word enough, that you could use the word enough in relation to the size, profitability, growth rate of your business. That is something that I think that a lot of businesses and a lot of individuals wear themselves out on this. It's always got to be what's the next, what's the next, what's the most, are we the best, are we number one? We're people. There is a a, a limit that you can hit in your personal ability And to think that organizations and corporations can just kind of blindly, mindlessly grow until the sun like dies and takes us all with it. Like that's just not a realistic term. And so I love that you're building something for the long haul, something that has actual foundation and stability to it. It's just a very, very cool. But I'm in the luxury position that I'm competing with people who are listed in the stock market. And yeah. once you're listed in the stock, and I had this, I had this experience in Paris. The quarterly results were everything. If you didn't yep. deliver, you the analyst gonna bash you up and spit you out, and your share price is in the gutter, right? So, as a privately held, private equity funded, privately held business, we have the luxury. Yes, of course, we look at our monthlies, we look at our quarterlies, we look at our yearlies. We want to hit our goals, but. If we don't, it's not like anyone's going to die, right? So right. so if we build for longevity, if we build for the next 10 years, um, it doesn't really matter if we are, you know, if we are half a percent more profitable right now. It really doesn't. Mm-hmm. But what matters to me is I want to be at scale because only when we get, at, get to scale, we can actually make a difference. If you're, you know, even with 550 people, we are nobody right now. We're too small. Right. We're way too small. But once, you know, once we are 3000 people, then we become a name and then we can help to shape the industry, can shape the market. And that hopefully gives better experience to people and therefore better results for clients. Well, just know I'm in your corner cheering you on because <laughs> this Good. industry could use a, a few new different notions. And I think the ones that you're putting together are exactly what this industry needs. Let's talk a little bit about the work and the support that you give your clients. Now, we talked a lot uh, already about the experience not matching up to the brand. And I think a lot of that is Uh, can be attributed to a fundamental lack of understanding about who your customer is, like really understanding who your customer is. So how does MTP help brands bridge this knowledge gap? And why do you think it exists to begin with? So uh, again, if um, the only reason why single SKU startup brands exist is because of the inefficiencies of large corporations, right? So I don't see it as bad. Um, I see it as 
a very normal evolution in a capitalistic economy. Like once a company gets to a certain size, it is so focused on protecting itself that it forgets to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. And the biggest mistake in innovating is um, comfort because revenue and EBITDA is strong. How that's generated doesn't really matter until we have a problem, right? So let me talk about CPG first. CPG is a typical industry where a large percentage of the revenue is generated through um, distribution channels the brand doesn't control, right? So you walk into Walmart, you walk into Whole Foods, and you pick up a product from a shelf. Um, the person who puts that product together gets no data, zero data. They don't know it's Mike, Tim. We don't. They don't know how old we are. They don't know if we have children. They don't know our zip code. Maybe they can predict the zip code because they get some POS sales data afterwards in which Walmart the product was sold, but there's technically no relationship. Where I don't judge large CPGs for that because that's how these businesses were built. Who I judge is when you have your own retail and you don't collect that data and give me a better experience. Yeah. Nevertheless, the CPGs have to become D2C at least when it comes to customer lifetime value and understanding your audience better, right? Otherwise, you're always going to pay ransom to Google. And I love Google. Don't get me wrong. I love all these guys, right? But that's the business model. You pay ransom to talk to your own customers, right? Meta is good at it. Google is good at it. Amazon is the best at it. So that's that's how their business model works. So nobody should come crying like, oh, I don't know my audience. Like, well, then get a D2C strategy going, right? Mm -hmm. So... um. And we have seen this in all kinds of industries, right? So uh, I think CPG is the most prevalent because there's really no reason not to do it anymore. Because <laughs> right, everybody's right. online. You can do it, right? Especially if you're a larger, larger brand. It becomes more complicated when you have other product categories where it's not so easy to, to, to get people. Like uh, I always make the Coca-Cola example, right? Like Coca-Cola is not really something you want to admit you're drinking, you know? But everybody does. Right? Mm -hmm. They have probably 6 billion customers out of 8 billion humans on the planet. They have 99.9% uh, 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 brand awareness or something like that. Yeah. But nobody wants to really admit and subscribe to get like a six-pack of Coke every other day. right? So that is a problem. But they also have no need to change that, if we're honest about it, right? right. Because they spend billions on, on positioning their brand. If you don't have that luxury, if you want to beat these giants, then you have to be smarter on becoming a D2C brand, collecting your own data, right? So how does MTP play into that? As we are spe specialized agencies under one roof, so we own 100% of these companies, um, we work for two different kinds of uh, client clusters, if you want to say so. Like there's technically three in my eyes, but we work primarily for two. Number one is the very large brands. Everybody knows them, right? The 10 billion revenue plus kind of companies. Uh, we work for them as a specialist, meaning we do something very specific, very good, better than most, most of the holding companies. That's why they work with us, right? So we are surgical specialists under specific brands for very large brands. And the second cluster is mid-sized companies. That's usually companies that run um, a few hundred million to $3 billion of revenue um, as a brand, right? And they could be um, a sub-brand within a large organization or they could be just a, a, a mid-sized organization themselves. And here we operate as a generalist. This is what I mentioned before when I said, well, let, let's be business partners. Instead of telling me, sending me a brief of, we need to rebrand Lacroix, right? As an example, I'm holding that in the camera here right now. Um, mm -hmm. We need to rebrand this. Tell me why. Why do you 
want to rebrand it? What's your what's your business goal to do it? Oh, we want to grow market share. Maybe rebranding it is not the right thing. Let's talk right. about something else. Well, how does your distribution look like? How does your social content look like? Do you understand your audience? Do you have a subscription model? Like we we act more like a business partner and consultant than we do as send me a brief, we execute against the brief for these mid-sized brands. With the large ones, we have we don't have the control over that story, right? But for um, smaller brands within large operation, corporations that want to act like a startup, we, we are very much there, right? And the third cluster are actually startups. Obviously, that part of the industry has um, been tough over the last couple of years. So we're not really focusing on that also because, um, and I'm a very active startup investor, so don't get me wrong, uh, even in these times. Um, but the problem is the cycle with startups, right? When a startup is young, they need a lot of help. They don't have money, right? So you don't get paid. Right. <laughs> once they, once they actually, once the startup is working, they have a lot of money and they decide they want to in-house everything, right? Because oh, now we, we need to bring it closer to the product. <laughs> right. And then right, before right. they, before they IPO, they outsource everything again. So it's a very, it's a roller coaster. So we, we can't, I can't build a business on a roller coaster. I have to build business with longevity, where clients are with us, ideally for ten years and more. Before we kind of pivot to some questions that we ask all of our guests, you have a wealth of very uh, particular experience and knowledge. So to all of our listeners out there who might be budding entrepreneurs or marketers just either starting to get into the game or starting to get into a leadership position, do you have a piece of advice that you kind of wish you knew when you were starting out that's helped you or do you think uh, could help our listeners? Yeah. So uh, number one, I had an unfair advantage that I was in the right moment with the right time and the right skill set at the time, right? So that's that's not something that's easy to replicate, but in all honesty, you can always replicate it. Mm. Because that's what we talk about when we talk about AI right now. It's not really, like, it doesn't matter which large language model or who owns it it doesn't matter if you understand how to use it if you're an architect and with architect i don't mean engineer if you're an architect of what you want to teach an ai and feed an ai to get a proper outcome if you can orchestrate that you have a skill that's probably extremely desirable to build your career in the next five to ten years extremely desirable so that means just Consuming it is not enough. It's like how social media, consuming it is fun, but that's not going to change your career. Like if you don't want to be an influencer, like everybody wants to be an influencer. So what I'm saying is like, it's obviously always hard work. It's it's a little bit of like having your ear at innovation and trend to understand what is a viable trend and what is not a viable trend. I can tell you, um, everybody who doubled down on blockchain infrastructure, technology is doing really well. Everybody mm-hmm. who jumped on NFTs is not doing so well, right? So right. because NFTs is a blip trend that's going to be around forever, but mm-hmm. it's not a viable industry in itself. Right. Um, blockchain, the infrastructure of changing the internet to decentralized infrastructure that nobody can technically own or control themselves as a single entity, that is obviously the future. So what I mean is like being smart about where you, where you specialize. Why am I mentioning this? Because I believe that most people who end up in leadership positions, I mean, I can only judge as an entrepreneur, you start as a specialist where you're really good at something, but you learn everything, right? Um, Mm -hmm. 
so you can handle a conversation about a broader topic, but the fundamentals of your beliefs and your skill comes from something very specific where nobody can beat you, right? Yeah. That's that's how I see most people actually growing within organizations pretty quick. If you're too theoretical, you're just Ivy League educated, but have no practical application of your knowledge. What am I going to do with that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so, but if you have a practical center and you can apply theoretical knowledge and then overarch with that, and, and that, that probably is pretty much rocket fuel in a career from my perspective, right? And again, failure is not a bad thing in that aspect. Like, I don't, I don't mind talking to people who build companies and failed. Like I failed in many things in my life, investing into the wrong things and whatnot. So failure actually makes you someone who's probably a better leader. 10,000%. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, if you're not failing at all, you're not trying enough, you know, That's there's you're not pushing. Right. Not pushing. Um, I love that. That is fantastic. That is actually like applicable, practical uh, advice. So thank you very much, Tim. And it doesn't um, need to be AI. It can, it can be any other topic. I'm just making an example because everybody wants to yeah, talk about Yeah, of course. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, I'm th thank you. We, we we put the quota of mentioning AI right. on the show. So I appreciate yeah. that. The hashtag is <laughs> There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on, as I said, there are some questions we ask all of our guests. This first one is open by design. Tim, what are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, uh, number one, I'm, I, it's sad for me to see that our industry was really strong-minded about it. And now it seems that people have retracted and they don't care anymore. And that makes me sad because I'm, I have been forever under the strongest belief that if, if, if you want to have a great work environment and a great company culture, you need diverse point of views at the table, right? And that comes from all areas of diversity, no matter if it is ethnicity, religion, um, gender, whatever it is, right? Um, the more diverse the team, the better the work is going to be. So that's my belief. So we are trying to do what we can to create that work environment is very difficult over Zoom because mm -hmm. um, especially cultural diversity um, has nothing to do with how do you, from my perspective, how do you write an article, right? Like, of course, right. it, it has to do with like, what is that person actually about? So, um, and I think, again, um, and I think it makes our work product better if we have a diverse team from all, from all aspects. It's going to make our work better. And I'm shocked how sometimes brands don't recognize that because you're not just selling to one ethnicity or one culture, or one religion or one zip code, right? You're, you're selling to everybody and everybody's different, right? Mm -hmm. More obvious and sometimes less obvious, but everybody's different. So, well, that's my that's my five cents. Yeah, no, and it is. And I, I ask that to all of our guests because I really do, from the bottom of my heart, feel that innovation without diversity, equity, and inclusion is absolutely impossible. You know, it's a farce. It is. It is. And, and, and I'm making, I'm, uh, let, let me make a stupid example here. Um, at IPG, we pitched Unilever Hair Care in Brazil out of New York. And nobody in the room was Brazilian. 
And we were like, well, let's do this differently, right? Let's get actually someone who knows what's going on in the hair care market in Brazil. And we flew in our MD from Brazil. And she explained to us there's 13 different hair types for women in Brazil because of all the, you know, all the immigration and yep. cultural mixing. And then within South America, then Europe, like North America, like she said, it's impossible to create a product that's going to work, right? And we came up with a really cool, um, um, with a really cool slogan, a really cool uh, campaign for for Unilever for a specific hair product, and they loved it, and we we won the client. But that's that for me was a very tangible example of like, well, how how can we sitting in the ivory tower, thinking we're the smartest marketeers on the planet, understand someone who actually buys a ninety nine cent product somewhere in the world, right? It's it's a complete farce. Mm -hmm. So. That's why I know diversity, equity, inclusion comes from many other different angles. But for me, from just from a from a work product angle, right? The more the more real diversity you can have in the room, the probably more successful the the product is going to be. Brilliant, and I think we've all can think of one or two examples where it was clear that the diversity, equity, inclusion was not present in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. And then yeah. somebody put $50 million behind a facepalm uh, failure, <laughs> and not naming any names yeah, at we have, all. We've seen those beers. Um, okay, let's go. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. <laughs> all right, my friend. This, uh, this next question, it, it gums some people up. Some people, it's the easiest question they've been asked okay. all afternoon. So let's see which one it is. Okay. Tim Ringle, CEO and co-founder of Meet the People. What is your favorite album of all time and why? Mm. Well, I have to out myself that um, I'm a big Coldplay fan. Mm -hmm. and that has to do with um that has just to do with a part of my life where i was traveling between germany and new york mm -hmm. when i was way younger um and i kept listening and that was still with like probably did i have an iphone well yeah i think i just got the first or second iphone and uh that was still itunes there was no body I invested in Spotify probably in 2009 maybe. So, um yeah, I was listening to the same two three albums on all these flights and I came to New York probably 14 times in times in one year, right? Wow. For the heart, for the heart. Mm -hmm. Um so that's where I had to uh, I listened to Parachute in repeat and one album from Key and I can't remember anymore uh what it was called. But it was beautiful, beautiful music. Yeah. It has changed since, but I still can listen to these albums and it's still gets me emotional enough but you know aeroplanes with all the air pressure you know i love the i, I love watching rom-coms on aeroplanes i always cry so same thing <laughs> when i listen to these albums like it actually makes me tear up and that... it's a mix, it's it's a mix of memory right time and you're in an enclosed environment where you can die any moment in an aeroplane right so <laughs> i think it just makes me cry <laughs> no that um, that makes a hundred percent sense there's always if something can live in a very specific part of your memory and your development. And especially, I'm sure that there were very, a lot of things going on um, with this, these trips back and forth and a lot of development. So I love it. So Parachutes by Coldplay yeah, at, yeah. at 30,000 feet, <laughs> preferably. Exactly, exactly. 36,000 <laughs> feet probably. But let me, um, this triggers actually a very interesting thought. And I, I think it's a good thing to take away from the podcast as well is how senses trigger emotion and memory 
mm-hmm. and how brands, for, sadly so, forget to play into that, right? And we've seen this. I've seen it. Sorry, I'm from 76, right? So I grew up with Stranger Things basically being my day-to-day life without obviously the upside down and like all the all the interesting parts of it. Right, right. You know, biking through the woods, like all this stuff and food, music, smells, bring that back. Mm-hmm. It's insane, right? So I feel brands could play way more with that. And I know I'm taking my generation here too serious, right? Um, but I would love if brands would play more with that. A thousand percent, one thousand percent. Yeah. And that's just, it goes back to the psychology behind marketing in general. There's so much there that is left on the table. But I'm 100%. specifically not mentioning the eyes because we are so overstimulated. Right? Yeah. Yes. Music, music, smell, taste, like not so overstimulated, one could argue. But, you know, uh, when I eat the next Taki and my mouth blows up, basically, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes, then yes, maybe yes. I'm overstimulated. But, I think the eyes are so overstimulated with social media, with everything being on a screen. Like maybe brands should, I mean, I'm riffing, right? But maybe brands should go more into the other senses. I, I love it. That's that's your bomb mod. That's your bonus content for the episode. Right, there you go. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, bring it up to the present to finish out the episode. Is there something you're listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast, or a book? What's getting you excited nowadays? Mm. Well, it's not the news. So, no. <laughs> and I try to be off social as much as I can. I shouldn't say this because. I find social really annoying lately. Um, I've deleted TikTok probably five times and then reinstalled it because my daughter is on TikTok. So I feel like I need to check what's going on. Um, Understandable. Just so addictive. It's it's terrible. And I, you think as an adult, you can control that, but there's half an hour just gone, right? Just yep. just scrolling. Like what just happened? Um, mm-hmm. So no, I'm trying, honestly, I'm trying to um, not get into anything right now. I'm really trying to focus um i do find myself researching a lot of travel again <laughs> post pandemic and with the economical right uh, volatility i feel like um maybe a good moment but i know the airlines make a ton of money on us right now as suckers then you know really want to get out and travel and see things so i think it's for me right now it's not so much consuming any digital content or something like that for me it's really it, IRL experiences. I love going back to restaurants. I love traveling again. I love meeting people. So that's kind of my 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 vibe right now. I love that. I love that. Um, Tim, if people are as inspired by this conversation as I am, how can they learn more about Meet the People? Well, definitely go on LinkedIn and follow follow me. Right, it's very easy. There's really only one Tim Ringle there. Um, um and then of course follow us on all the social channels meet the people is pretty easy to find um and you know just get involved reach out if we are obviously a growing organization if anyone is looking to change jobs i know there's a lot of stuff going out uh, on out there we are we are always have an open ear you can always dm me on linkedin i really try to respond to everyone it's not so easy but i really try to respond to everyone otherwise it's tim at meetthepeople.com pretty easy There you have it, folks. Tim, thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time. This was an all-time episode of the Marketing (laughs) Futures Podcast. Thank you, friend. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Futures Podcast and for supporting us all year long. 
We'll see you next year where our first guest of 2024 will be A&E's Nikki Mandel. The Marketing Futures Podcast airs Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. Have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the pod? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, find everything you need to prepare for the future of marketing at ana.net slash futures. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.